You're tuning in to the Hopes Podcast. You're listening to the Podcast for Hopes, the Huntington's Outreach Project for Education at Stanford. In each episode, we share stories that shed light on the history and current issues in Huntington's research. I'm Kat Ferguson, and today I proudly present Up Against Chance. Chance. It can be a pretty tricky game to play. What do you leave up to chance in your life? In a time like a pandemic, it can be hard to think of anything that you don't leave up to chance. Most of the time, trying to prepare for every possible outcome is going to be a losing battle. But sometimes, that's the only thing you can do. Everything else is down to chance. In this episode of the Hopes Podcast, we're going to be talking about family. And more specifically, the links that we'll go to for our family. Family can mean a lot of things. Right now, we're either quarantined with them and a little too close for comfort, or we haven't been able to see them in a really long time. In an era where we won't be able to gather around the Thanksgiving table with the people that we love, family is going to look a little different. I met a young scientist couple who are envisioning their own family, the one they hope to create together. They dream of bringing a product of their relationship into the world, but there are barriers to that dream, especially when one of them, by chance, finds out the unimaginable, news that lays their quest for a family at the mercy of probability. The names of our storytellers today have been changed to protect their privacy. Before we start, let me give a brief content warning. Today we're going to hear about blood, labor, medical procedures, and termination of pregnancy. Needles and dissection will be mentioned in a medical and scientific context. Sensitive listeners, please be advised. All right, do you want to go first? No, you I? have to start because oh. I introduced myself in relation to you. Oh, okay. All right, so I'm not sure exactly what I should say, but... I mean, there aren't that many neuroscientists who studied HD who discovered that they had HD by chance. Yeah. Like, you're, like, the only one. <laughs> this is Silas. He's a neuroscientist who thought that he was only dedicating his professional life to Huntington's disease. But one day in the lab, completely by accident... He found out that HD was going to play an even bigger role in his life than he thought. I was doing research on Huntington's disease, and for that research, we were using the YAC-128 model of Huntington's disease. And so that uh, has the human version of the Huntington gene inserted into the mouse genome. And it has 128 uh, CAG repeats in the Huntington gene, so it will develop the symptoms, and it has kind of a slow progression that fairly well models what's going on in people. Here's a brief overview of HD. There's a protein called Huntington that all people have, whether they have HD or not. You experience the neurodegenerative effects of Huntington's disease when your Huntington protein comes with too many repeats of the nucleotide sequence, CAG. Unaffected people have up to 39 CAG repeats, while people with Huntington's disease can have up to 180 CAG repeats. People who have Huntington's disease have on average 42 CAG repeats, but the mice that are used to model the human experience need to have 128 because mice have shorter lifespans than humans. The mice's experience needs to approximately match the delayed onset and the progression seen in human HD patients. Now you have the basics, so let's get back to the story. 
Silas is working on his mice, but there's a potential problem that he needs to check for. One thing that happens in, this, uh, in the different mouse models of repeat expansion disorders, which also happens in patients that have repeat expansion disorders, is that there can be instability in the length of the repeat tract from generation to generation. Usually, the tract length will stay the same when it's passed on maternally, but when it's passed on paternally, it can be more prone to expansion events. So we were making sure that there wasn't one of these events happening in our mice that could confound some of our experimental results. An expansion event is when a child inherits more repeats than their parent had. This doesn't happen often in the egg that comes from the female parent, but sometimes, in the sperm that comes from the male parent, an expansion event occurs that it results in the child inheriting more CAG repeats on the gene that encodes the Huntington protein than the male parent actually had. Silas had to make sure that this wasn't happening, because he wanted all of his mice to have the same number of CAG repeats. After all, the number of CAG repeats that you have can impact the severity of your condition, and this would add a confounding variable to Silas's research. I uh, used a molecular biology technique called a polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, uh, to basically make a bunch of copies of the CAG repeat tract, just duplicated it over and over and over, and then you can run those uh, fragments of DNA on a gel. One way to kind of think about that is you can separate out the DNA fragments based on their size as they run through the sagros gel. An analogy would be like if you have fish swimming down a stream, but you put a bunch of nets in that stream, the smaller fish will be able to pass more rapidly through those nets and traverse further, whereas larger fish will be slowed down by trying to get you know caught up in the holes in the nets. And so DNA kind of does that same thing as it passes through an agarose gel when it's being pushed downstream through an electrical current. So then you can visualize the size of the DNA fragment. So Silas wanted to run this test to see if his mice had the right number of CAG repeats by looking at the size of the DNA fragment. The larger the fragment, the more repeats. But if we remember anything from sixth grade biology, a basic experiment always has an experimental group, that's the mouse DNA he's checking for expansion events, and a control group, which would be any DNA that is HG negative. Silas figured that would be easy to get. He could just use his own, right? I basically used a, um, just a needle or something. I don't remember what I used. I think it was like a syringe needle. And I basically just pricked my finger and squeezed a little bit of blood out onto a microscope slide. And then I transferred that probably using a pipette into a, a test tube and then extracted the genomic DNA and add it to another mixture of chemicals uh, that's prepared specifically for doing the PCR polymerase chain reaction. The polymerase chain reaction is basically a process where you can extract the copies of the specific tract, or segment, of DNA that you're interested in. Silas repeats the PCR process a few times for the DNA that encodes the Huntington protein, that is, the DNA that comes with those CAG repeats that I mentioned earlier. They're just in the liquid in the test tube um, after this, and uh, then to visualize the DNA, uh, we need to separate out, separate it based on the, the size of the uh, PCR product. Uh, and as it passes through the agarose gel, um, it's kind of a porous matrix, and uh, the smaller DNA fragments can uh, pass pretty quickly through kind of the, the passageways in that matrix whereas larger fragments of DNA are going to get kind of uh, caught up. And uh, then you can separate out, you, and then after running it across the gel uh, for, you know, an hour or whatever, um, you can visualize the DNA by adding in a uh, chemical, ethidium bromide, that makes the DNA fluorescent when you shine UV light on it. So then you can just take a picture of where all these DNA fragments are within the gel, and you'll see it kind of just looks like a little, um, like a pill-shaped uh, fluorescent band in each lane. And depending on how far that band has migrated, that tells you the size of the DNA fragment. And so from there, then you can figure out, okay, is it, you know, a, a short CAG repeat tract, in which case it would have moved a long distance along the gel, or it, you can see that it, it has not run as quickly and so it's a longer uh, CAG repeat tract. And then you can compare them to the, f the fluorescent bands of the DNA ladder that, you know, so there's one that's, a, you know, 100 
uh, DNA letters long, one that's 200, 300, 400, 500, etc. And then you can just compare your fragment to the DNA ladder to estimate its approximate size. Um, so then after I had the, uh, after I could see that I had a, an expanded version of the Huntington gene. It was definitely a shock, and I, I mean, I've kind of felt a bit, I don't know, almost like numb, and that kind of feeling of it's hard to um, kind of concentrate, you know, or think about other things, because that's, you know, kind of a, a surprise. It was definitely a lot to take in, and of course I told uh, my wife Ivy and told other people in my family and some close friends that I, you know, had found this mutation, and of course all of them were questioning my ability to do science, <laughs> you know, kind of like, well, you know, how confident are you? And, you know, there, there are some things that could kind of explain how maybe I could have a false positive result. HD doesn't run in my family, you know, so there was no reason for me to expect that I might have that mutation. We kind of were hoping that maybe I wasn't as good as science at science as I was, <laughs> you know, hoped that I was. So Seth has got a second opinion. I could shine UV light onto that gel and then just use a razor blade to cut out the, the, the part of the gel that had and just send that to a, um, a sequencing core, uh, core facility to give me like the specific um, DNA letters, C, A, T, G, you know, in the order that they appear, appear within that fragment that I had copied a bunch of times. So then I, after that, I could see when I got the results back from the sequencing. So you can, you know, literally control find C, A, G, C, A, G, C, A, G, and it'll jump to that part of the um, sequence. I basically just selected, you know, the same way you would select text in a text file. And you can, um, you know, basically I copy and pasted it into Word and you can count how many characters there are. And so it's pretty easy to uh, check uh, how many CAG repeats there are. On Silas's screen is a Word doc with nothing but CAG written on it. 42 times. And so that that's how I found out that I had the disease. How could Silas be HD positive if he has no family history of it? If you remember those expansion events that Silas was talking about earlier, then you might already have an idea. You know, the, the prevalence is around 1 in 10,000. 10% of cases are um, spontaneous, so there is no family history, and that can crop up because of these uh, kind of incremental expansion events from generation to generation. My mom had passed away uh, from cancer uh, at a fairly young age, and I checked my dad's DNA, and he did not have the expanded allele, so I must have got it from my mom. She passed away basically uh, before developing any symptoms. I basically surmised that given that it typically will expand when passed on from a father. The most likely scenario is that my in my grandfather's sperm that gave rise to my mom, there was an expansion event. So he probably had kind of an intermediate allele where, you know, maybe like 37 repeats or something like that, where it's not long enough to cause disease. Like maybe in some people, it could cause a milder form of the disease at a much later stage in life, um, but not in everyone. There's kind of incomplete penetrance. However HD got into Silas's genetics, though, it was definitely there. And as HD always does, it came with a whole new host of concerns that Silas had never had to worry about before. I looked up videos of what the patients go through, and I had seen patients in the clinic before shadowing a physician, uh, so I kind of had some awareness of what was in store. But, um, you know, I think it was hard to watch uh, some videos and see what the symptoms can be like. Symptom onset occurs depending on how many CAG repeats you have on the gene that encodes the Huntington protein. The more CAG repeats you have, the earlier the onset. At just 55 repeats, you could experience juvenile onset, which is when you develop symptoms before you're even 21 years old. Once you develop symptoms, usually the progression is over about 15 to 20 years. But that's, you know, I actually looked at some, some data and, you know, so maybe 
once people have symptom onset, maybe about 50% of them will live past 15 or 20 years. And then, you know, it kind of tapers off over 30 to, or more, 30 to 40 years after that. So I guess, you know, there is a, I mean, there's a chance that it could be, result in a, a shorter lifespan, as well as a lot of hardships associated with um, cognitive issues or psychiatric issues, uh, or the uh, excessive movement or chorea that's associated with Huntington's disease. I mean, it's it, it's a really big deal to know that that could be uh, something that I'm going to be facing in the future. There's another character in this story whose life was irreversibly changed by Silas's HD status. I'm Silas's wife, Ivy. When Silas told me, it was really hard to believe. Um, the first stage of grief is denial, and I really just didn't even want to believe it. I didn't really know that much about HD, but I knew that it was a neurodegenerative disease and that I didn't want Silas to have it. And I was hoping that he was just really bad at science, but deep down, I think I knew that he's a really great scientist and that unfortunately he probably actually did have HD. In some ways, nothing has actually changed, but we know that it's only a matter of time before Silas develops symptoms. Now that it's on the, the more forefront of my mind, um, and I'm thinking about HD more often, I do kind of wonder sometimes, you know, if, if uh, Silas forgets something or just seems to do something kind of silly, um, you know, little things that we, that we all do, I do kind of start to wonder if that's the beginning of HD. Um, you know, there's been times where we're, we're driving and he seems like he's not going to stop for a stop sign. And so I have to be a side seat driver. And, um, I kind of wonder if, you know, is that him just kind of being absent-minded or is that the beginning of HD? Um, it's, it's hard to know, you know, we really don't have control over the neurodegeneration that is going to be taking place. Um, but it is something that we do, you know, certainly kind of crosses our minds um, more often these days. I certainly can feel pretty helpless at times. Silas is doing everything he can to try to maintain his health and possibly put off the onset of symptoms. He's exercising, he's getting more sleep, all of the above. But the onset of Silas's symptoms remains a looming inevitability, one that Ivy and Silas have to be ready for whenever it comes. I became more worried about, you know, am I showing any cognitive symptoms or deficits? Am I having trouble remembering things, which, you know, thinking of a word or uh, thinking back to a specific memory or trying to remember when we did things or a year, like second grade, we were talking about that. And, you know, I was having trouble recalling my teacher's name or when I'm falling asleep at night or trying to go to sleep, uh, it can sometimes kind of get a restless leg sensation. Um, and that, you know, that's something that people without HD can have too. But I'm mostly like worried about, you know, once the onset happens, then there's kind of like a predictable trajectory of the progression of the disease. And so the later the onset happens, the better off you are. Ivy and Silas's life has become a race against a clock they can't see, especially when it comes to building their family. So I've always planned to have kids, and once we found out that Silas has Huntington's disease, we knew that this would complicate things because it's a genetic disorder. 
Silas has so many good genes to pass on. And I know that he's going to be such an amazing father. It was really important to me to pass on our genes and see a mix of us, you know, and physically, our temperament, you know, everything about us to, to kind of see what that looks like when we mix mix our genes. It was also important to me personally to experience pregnancy and breastfeeding. And, you know, like that's just part of the whole experience of, of becoming a parent. So I have two copies of the kind of quote good Huntington gene, right? Like the the sub-threshold genes. So no matter what, I'm always going to be passing on one of those. And Silas has one normal length copy of the Huntington gene and one expanded length of the Huntington gene. So that's where it comes down to just a 50-50 chance of whether our kids inherit his normal length copy or his expanded copy of the Huntington's disease gene. I know that many families face infertility and that miscarriages are more common than most people realize. So I've always had some concerns in the back of my mind that when we are ready to start trying to to have a family, it might not go as smoothly as we wanted. And we knew that that was still a possibility in addition to factoring in uh, HD. To me, it's really important that our kids do not have Huntington's disease. And I'm so grateful that we have the technology and resources to ensure that our kids won't have HD. It's not easy, but it is possible. I mean, there's no easy way around this when you have a 50-50 chance of passing on Huntington's disease. Before taking my IUD out, um, we didn't know if we were fertile, and we didn't know kind of how that process was going to go. Um, just in terms of getting pregnant and carrying a pregnancy. We knew that testing could be part of it. Um, but I, I think when I, before I was pregnant going into it, I kind of naively assumed that testing would happen pretty early on in the pregnancy and that it would be pretty quick and easy to induce a miscarriage. Um, basically, you know, when it's on purpose, it's really an abortion. And that the, I just assumed that it would be kind of a a quick and easy early on kind of thing. Um, But as it turns out, the the timeline and logistics for testing for HD were a little bit more involved than we realized. Silas and Ivy quickly learned that they were pregnant, but they didn't anticipate the amount of time that they would have to wait before they could test their fetus for HD. We've been monitoring our pregnancy, making sure that it's kind of a healthy, normal pregnancy, and we're seeing the ultrasounds. And at 13 weeks along with today's technology, I mean, you can see kind of the the skeletal structure of the baby looked a lot like Silas. Um, You could kind of see the baby had really big lips. You could just see a lot of details from, like, you know, the size of the lips. I have large lips, the lanky arms and legs. There were a lot of features. I mean, it really would have been kind of like a little clone of me. We really started to become attached to him and, and start falling in love with, you know, our first little baby. We did chorionic villus sampling testing, or CVS testing, at 13 weeks along, which was uncomfortable for me um, and quite frightening, actually, for Silas to witness. Um, so they take a, a decent-sized needle, in, in my case through the, the abdomen, and they're, they're using an ultrasound to do some imaging and, and get to where the placenta is, and they kind of have to um, 
go in and out with the needle a few times, kind of triturate it so that they can break up some of those cells. And then they, they suck up some of the placental cells. So they're not touching the fetus, but um, the, you know, it's a little frightening because uh, the needle is getting pretty close to the fetus. Ivy couldn't really see the screen when they were doing the ultrasound and inject, uh, sticking the needle uh, through her abdomen, um, but I could see what was going on. And I could, they used the ultrasound to visualize where the needle tip is in the placenta, but our fetus was oriented such that his head was uh, right next to where the needle was. And so they're sticking the needle in and out to physically disrupt the cells, dislodge them from the placental tissue and extract them. Um, but as they're kind of jabbing repeatedly, I mean, they, it, you know, it'd be so easy to just like poke out an eye or stick it into the brain or something like that. So it was like, um, and you don't know at that point, is that the one, you know, is that your baby, the one that you're actually going to keep? they take those placental cells and then those have the same DNA as our fetus. So then they're able to send those in for testing. And then we waited about two weeks or so for the results, which was a tough two weeks. So it was really hard when we got the results that our baby also had Huntington's disease. This was really just devastating because we knew that we would terminate the pregnancy. There was no other option really for us. Um, it was hard. It was really hard. In some ways, surprising to me how hard it was to cope with with this, um, because I've always been pro-choice, and I didn't expect it to be so hard. Um, at this point, our baby was so tiny and um, didn't really seem like a, a real person yet. But this was my first time being pregnant, and you know, I, I really became very attached. It was it was against all of our instincts to terminate the pregnancy. Um, but we knew that we didn't want to pass on Huntington's disease. And and then, you know, our, our children would be going through the same thing that we're going through when they're trying to have kids, of whether they would be passing that on or not. I also knew that in the long run, it would be so much harder to raise our our baby or into a, a kid and into an adult and for them to see Silas going through Huntington's disease and know that that was in their future and I I mean knowing that I'm going to be a caregiver for my husband and I I just could not go through life knowing that my kids would would be going through the same thing. Um, it's just too, too much suffering, too much, too much to deal with. So as hard as it was to terminate, we knew that that was the best option and would ultimately result in the least amount of suffering overall. I, you know, agree and support Ivy and the decision to terminate. I had kind of mixed feelings about it. And um, I guess for me, like, I think it's the probably, I don't necessarily think that there's one, like, um, best solution. Um, because, I mean, I think it is, you know, I mean, I, I wanted for to be supportive of her. And, you know, it's going to be hard for her to have me and one one or two of our kids uh, 
you know, end up having Huntington's disease. But I'm really grateful to be alive, even with the mutation. And I even kind of wonder if it, even though it, the disease doesn't kick in later in life, having a gene variant, you know, the, all the gene variants are really kind of what make you who you are. So I kind of wonder to what extent this has shaped who I am as a person or subtly affected, you know, things like personality or cognition or whatever, and made me who I am. Obviously, there's a lot of really terrible aspects of Huntington's disease and having the mutation, but I guess I was a little bit more open to raising a kid with HD. But it's kind of a, a tricky thing because, you know, as the father, I'd be at greater risk of having an expansion event. And, you know, so there's a chance that our kid could have more than the 42 repeats that I have. And if that happens, then, you know, they can get the disease even earlier and it can be way more severe. Uh, sometimes people get it when they're kids or teenagers. So, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing. I mean, I, I'm really, you know, grateful to be here. Also pro-choice and, you know, I mean, it's hard to know. They, they could be like a really wonderful person. I think for me, the hardest part is kind of losing what could have been or like the possible future of the kid. And so it's hard to like lose that possibility. After we found out that our fetus was HD positive, Ivy realized that we could perhaps donate the fetus for research, for Huntington's disease research. And so I reached out to one of the uh, professors that I previously worked with, and she was able to put us in touch with someone who orchestrated the donation process for us. And along with support from uh, CHDI. They, they covered some of the expenses for um, extracting the brain and um, preparing it, shipping it out to a, a couple different researchers. Um, so one half of the brain was uh, donated for use for slicing it up and uh, so people, researchers can look at early developmental changes uh, that might be related to the HD mutation so they can uh, slice it and look at, a, at it with microscopes or whatever. Uh, or the other half of the brain went to a researcher who's looking at how the HD mutation might be affecting the development of certain parts of the brain. I was really overwhelmed by all of the support that we got from the people that put a lot of time and effort into all the emails and calls that uh, were needed to really pull the donation together. The genetic counselors were amazing. There were a couple of them that helped us, and they were so awesome at just like reaching out and finding the appropriate people in the medical facilities that would be able to work with us. Uh, and there were a lot of people that we didn't even interact with directly that I'm sure put a lot of time and effort in um, at CHDI and uh, at the receiving end of the people who received the tissue. So, I mean, it, it was really amazing. Uh, I mean, it was challenging to, to do, but it was also really amazing uh, to see that all come together. The termination, of course, was really hard. I mean, emotionally, physically, everything was just so draining. It was a natural induction termination. And so, like, we basically gave birth to a super premature fetus. There was a window of time, like, where the, the faster we could get the fetus into ice-cold solution and over to the pathology lab that would do the dissection, you know, the better the tissue quality would be for Huntington's disease research. So we really tried to kind of balance our competing interests of providing useful tissue to research, but also like having a few minutes to, to really be there um, with him. Ivy didn't even need any. They offered her fentanyl, which is a really potent opioid to control the pain. And uh, she went through the whole process without any painkillers, uh, maybe some ibuprofen, but I don't even know if she had that, just because she wanted to be fully present for, for that um, short period of time that we would have 
uh, with our fetus. And so, you know, that was kind of amazing to see her push through all of that. And even with the pain and uh, she had pretty bad nausea because that's a side effect of um, the medication that was um, used to induce the labor. And um, so, I mean, it, it was it was a lot to see. I mean, between the nausea and diarrhea and everything else and still trying to get back and into bed to, um, to give birth. It was, um, she, she did a remarkably great job of pulling that off. I don't know. Maybe that's TMI. (laughs) (laughs) This was kind of a silver lining in it all to be able to donate the brain to research. And, you know, we can be a little bit hopeful that, you know, our our son is kind of serving his purpose and will perhaps make a meaningful contribution to Huntington's disease research. And, you know, maybe that could even em- end up impacting his father's treatment later on. We, we don't know. Um, but it gives us a little bit of kind of hope or optimism and it's kind of the silver lining in, in this otherwise really difficult process. Even though it was really hard to, um, part ways with our, uh, first, first, um, baby, I mean, at least we were able to contribute to something positive. After losing their first child, Ivy and Silas knew that their initial approach to having an HD-free child wasn't something they wanted to go through again. After terminating our our son, our first baby, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis through IVF sounded a lot more appealing. IVF is in some ways, I think, hopefully going to be easier than you know, what I deemed, what we went through before, I, I call it HD roulette because you just get pregnant and there's a 50-50 chance and you just kind of have to wait at least 13 weeks and, and then see. I mean, you can flip a coin and ha- end up with heads or tails six times in a row. And, it, it, you know, it'd be really hard to um, go through that process and um, keep having the same result. I think before we got pregnant, we we knew that this was an option, but, you know, it seemed really expensive. Certainly there's a lot of things involved. And, you know, we have a 50-50 chance going in. And and like I said, I, I didn't think that the termination process would be so late in the game and, and so emotionally difficult. It was really hard to be pregnant and having this kind of internal conflict where I didn't know if this was going to be our first kid and like, you know, our forever kind of baby or if this baby was going to have HD and that we were going to terminate. And for those 17 weeks that I was growing that baby inside me, most of that time I didn't know if they had HD or not and kind of what their future would hold. And I was sort of torn, you know, I couldn't be as invested in the pregnancy. I couldn't be as excited about this first pregnancy like I normally would be. I think every woman has some worries and fears about whether the pregnancy is going to to go as planned and whether their baby's going to be healthy. But it was more than that and we knew that we had this 50-50 chance that the baby would have HD. So I didn't want to go through that again. Um, You know, I want to just have those normal fears and worries that every pregnant woman experiences without thinking that 
there's a 50-50 chance of terminating. So it seems like it would it would be easier to to start out with uh, an embryo that doesn't have Huntington's disease. We met with a provider at the fertility clinic and they kind of gave us the rundown of what to expect and we were hoping to get started probably around now or or certainly within the next couple of months but uh, COVID has kind of delayed things to where the, the clinics kind of shut down or or not doing some of the workups and stuff that we need to do beforehand. So it might be pushed back a little bit, which is challenging because we're we're getting older. We are in our early 30s, and we know, especially after talking to the doctor, that the older we get, the, the more risk there is um, for things like Down syndrome or, or other kind of complications during pregnancy. And... You know, when it comes down to it, um, we want our kids to have as much, you know, good quality life and, and kind of the good years with Silas before he starts to have symptoms of HD. So the sooner that we can start our family and kind of, grow, you know, raise our kids to an age where they can really remember their dad will be, you know, the sooner we can do that, the better. The problem is, IVF is a really involved process that goes through a lot of time-consuming and expensive steps before you even get to the final product. They need to develop a probe that's actually custom for Silas. So they got a cheek swab from each of us and also a, a cheek swab from Silas's father. And they were able to use some of the tissue from the CVS testing that they did with our first baby um, so that they're really able to hone in on that exact gene for Silas. And then they'll be doing some hormone injections like they normally would for IVF to try to stimulate the follicles to produce more eggs. Then they'll extract the eggs and then they... I don't know how they do it. Super cool technology. They're able to like take individual single sperm, whatever ones, you know, they're, you know, well-formed, you know, swimmers that are moving around nicely. They pick them out and inject one sperm into one egg and um, let it start developing into an embryo. Instead of just being aware of the 50-50 chance like they were with their first pregnancy, Ivy and Silas have to be aware of a host of other probabilities. It's kind of a numbers game, it seems like. So after they take the eggs or the oocytes out from me, if all goes well, they would get 15 per cycle. And then maybe 80% of those would be expected to be mature. So that would put us down to about 12. And then... You know, they fertilize the eggs, like I talked about, kind of one sperm at a, at a time in each egg. And about 70% of those will kind of properly fertilize. So then we're down to about nine. And then they let them grow for a few days. The embryos are kind of doing their, their thing. And if all goes well, maybe um, four or five of those would be good. And then they can t they send them into somewhere else to get tested using that probe that we talked about um, to be able to distinguish whether they have Huntington's disease or not. And, you know, there's a 50-50 chance at that point. Um, so maybe two of them would not have, two or three would hopefully not have Huntington's disease then I think they usually plan on wanting to have two good embryos for each pregnancy, just kind of for 
other things that can go wrong, um, just sort of better safe than sorry. And so it was kind of interesting how, how quickly you can get from 15 eggs coming out of me, which sounds like a lot, down to, you know, one or two that hopefully would would be unaffected by HD if, if all goes well. I think the worst case scenario would be if something, gosh, if we were to go through this IVF, if they did the CVS testing and somehow found out that something had gone wrong and our baby actually did have Huntington's disease, that would just be really devastating. Small small chance, but still possible. Or if something is going wrong where we're not able to, to produce a, a healthy baby within the next, you know, couple of years, um, kind of getting back to square one, that would be really really tough and especially like I said kind of knowing that that life is short and that Silas's life is short and that we want to have kids as soon as possible you know every every month kind of counts uh these days right now Ivy and Silas don't know if IVF is going to be the answer to their quest for a family They don't know how the rest of their lives together are going to turn out. They can only prepare as much as they can and hope for the best. I mean, most importantly, we just want a healthy pregnancy and a a healthy baby, you know, sooner rather than later. It's highly unlikely that I'm going to get to sit in a nursing home or retirement home with my partner, and he might not be able to see grandkids or... Um, We're not going to kind of have those old people times together. But, you know, we're hoping that that we can enjoy life while we can and enjoy life with our hopeful, you know, soon kids who don't have HD and kind of make the most most of time until then. Yeah, I mean, ditto for all of that. I'm, I'm optimistic that, you know, I've been part of the research process, so I've seen how much is going on uh, in terms of trying to find treatments and uh, cures. And we live in a really amazing time with all all the the emergence of new technologies and new, uh, so much information about genetics uh, that we didn't have before. Gene therapy is uh, kind of, I think, a a blossoming area of uh, medicine. But I think that in our lifetime, I'm really hopeful that there's going to be some major medical advances. And, you know, I'm, I plan to uh, participate in some of the clinical trials and uh, to help contribute to that research, at least the ones that I think are promising. And I don't know, so maybe I can, we can lead a relatively normal life and uh, just make the most of it and that we can be there for our kids and not be a, a burden on them. So we'll see, though. Your purpose getting clearer 
spirit family drawing nearer. Thank you to Silas and Ivy for sharing their story. Thanks to the Hopes Fund and Stanford for their support. Thanks to Catherine Heaney and the Hopes team for guidance. And thank you to Christine Yang and Lauren Hinckley, who provided feedback on this podcast. If there is anything related to HD that you're interested in hearing more about on the podcast, let us know in the reviews. I'm Kat Ferguson. I know a dream that gets bigger the more you believe. And I know a bridge that gets stronger the more than you And your ha-ha-ha is shining brighter Your ha-ha-ha feeling lighter And your ego getting smaller Like the loosening of a collar And your purpose getting clearer Spirit family drawing nearer To the water and there's a lot of days and a lot of ways to see went to the fire there's a lot of days and a lot of ways to see look to the ground there's a lot of days and a lot of ways to see look to the sky Spirit family drawing nearer.